The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give you thanks that we can sing and, and celebrate what you have done. You have sent Christ and he has been born. He is here. He's among us. He is over us. We are, we are his people all by your work. That's what you have done. Thank you. And I pray that now, Lord, here dwelling in our midst, that you would teach us, that you would further shape our minds and our hearts to walk after you and that you would open up this passage in front of us and mature us and grow us up into the image of this one you have sent. Father, speak now by your spirit. Move us. Do us this good and be honored here in our midst. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All people want to live the good life. The kind of life that is pleasant and pleasing to them. The kind of life that others would look at and say, wow, that must be nice to have that, to, to live in that, to experience that, to not have that, not experience that. You are pretty fortunate. That's what everybody wants, Christians included, and perhaps this is unexpected, Christians required. We don't, we don't just want the good life. Christians are called to and actually required to live this good life that God has made for us and wants to lead us into a life of blessing. That's what brings us to the Sermon on the Mount. And in particular, where the Sermon on the Mount begins, the Beatitudes. They introduce this great and well-known lengthy sermon of Jesus that takes up three chapters here in the Gospel of Matthew and is going to take up some time for us as we look at it piece by piece. Three Sundays ago, when we were last in Matthew, we finished chapter 4, seeing there the calling of the first disciples. Jesus called out two by two, is the beginning of his calling of his disciples, and he called them to be with him and to engage with him in his ministry of teaching, of proclaiming, and of doing indiscriminate good to all of those who were around him. And we see there, we saw there, the basic assignment for those of us who are disciples of Jesus. You don't get a lot of details. You get, you get kind of the basic, the paradigm. We are called to be with him, empowered by him, ministering to others in all the various ways in which he gifts us. That's, that's the end of chapter 4, a broad and brief statement about the purpose of Jesus' disciples, what we are to be about, what we're doing here. But now we get a change, a different focus for an extended period of time as Jesus himself is going to teach us what we who are Christians, what we are meant to be. And it's important that we hear that sentence just like I said it. He's teaching us, we who are Christians, what we are meant to be. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me read them right now. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. 
And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So, see in those two verses, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. That's, that's not a, like a gigantic mountain. It's a way of saying he went into the hills. He went up into the hilly place. Seeing the crowds, he went to the mountain, sat down like a teacher would, and taught his disciples. Seeing the crowds teaches the disciples. So this is focused on not everybody. It's focused on a subset, those who are disciples of his. Teaching them, us, what we are to be. Now clearly, other parts in this sermon that we're going to look at, other parts reveal, and, the, and in fact it concludes with the, with the realization that the crowds followed him. There are other people around, and he knows that. He's, he's teaching his disciples with clearly the, the awareness that there are others around listening, and he's talking to them too. In this way, not that different from a sermon in a church. We have a sermon here in a church gathering where this is directed at the people of God, but any preacher is, is obviously aware that there are others always around who aren't Christians or who aren't sure where they are. If you're here, you're welcome. That, that's... that's Great, we, we are excited by that. But the focus is, this is a teaching time for the people of God. Jesus' main focus is the disciples. He's teaching them, and those of us today who would use the term Christians, it's not quite fitting at this point in history to use Christian, but the disciples, the Christians, that's the target audience of Jesus. Beginning with the Beatitudes, this description of our character, which, like any description of character, includes with it some implicit command. You, you hear it in there somewhere. It's not the focus, but it's in there. Like if I were to say, husbands are faithful to their wives. If you're a husband, you hear their, okay, that's what, I'm, that's what I am, and I'm supposed to be that, and I maybe need to correct a few things or refocus some effort on faithfulness. You hear in there an implied command, but it's a statement about character. It is not a recipe as to how to become a husband. Critical point. You hear that, husbands are faithful to their wives, and that's not how you become a husband. Find a woman and be faithful to her. There's more to it, involving a marriage license and at least a county clerk. There's a larger process about how one becomes a husband. But that's a necessary component to marriage, and it's actually a necessary precursor. You must find a woman and choose to be faithful to her before the license comes along. So you hear character description, and you're hearing not, this is how I become that. But this is what it means to be that. And it's a necessary precursor to that. People have misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount in countless ways on this very point. This is not, and I'll probably say this a hundred times in the following weeks, this is not, here's a path, and if I do this and do this and do this, I become a Christian. No, no. That is something else, involves faith in Christ, Christ crucified. Don't misunderstand that. Very important. This is instruction directed at the people of God, telling us what we are to be like. A necessary component to our character. 
and something that is necessary to be in there if you want to become a Christian, but it's not how you become a Christian. Let's be clear about that. And having understood that, where it begins with the Beatitudes. Let me read verse 3, the important, critical opening of the sermon. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus' opening statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to split that in half, two points about the two halves of that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That word blessed occurs here repeatedly, obviously, on and on. And it's from that word that we get the idea of beatitude, a statement about blessing. So, since we're going to see it so often, it's important that we understand it clearly, that we kind of lay some of the groundwork here at the beginning. It's a very religious-sounding word, blessed. What does it mean? Well, maybe you've heard, and perhaps your translation even says, happy. There's something to that, but it's not quite best because happiness really is about an internal emotional feeling. And you might not feel happy as you're walking in some of these beatitudes that Jesus calls us to. So happy, we are going to feel something. So that sort of works. You keep that in mind, but it's not the best word. So maybe you've heard fortunate better but in some of our ears, fortunate sounds a bit like lucky. And there's nothing about luck here. So single words sometimes fail us. So perhaps as you hear today, blessed, and in the following weeks, blessed, 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 maybe in your mind, substitute in, in place of that word, a phrase that goes something like this. One writer put it like this. You hear blessed, and you maybe could think to be congratulated and envied for the good situation you find yourself in. Blessed to be congratulated and even envied for the good situation you find yourself in. So this existence that we're going to see unpacked here, statement by statement, this, this life, it's the life to be envied. It's the good life. And Jesus calls us to it and in this case, first off, blessed are the poor in spirit. An extremely appropriate but perhaps odd place to start. Poor in spirit. We need to understand this. It'll set us up to it'll prepare us to hear everything else and understand everything else that follows. Now, the Gospel of Luke also contains a Sermon on the Mount, a shorter version. Luke has presented it in an abbreviated format for his own purposes. But there, if you read Luke, Luke writes, blessed are the poor, no mention of in the spirit. So some people have thought that what Jesus is talking about is actually material poverty. That's not the case. There's nothing about being materially poor in view here. Not having any resources. Nothing about poverty guarantees us any access to God's kingdom. That should be obvious. But furthermore, Poor in spirit, poverty of spirit, that language is found elsewhere in the Bible, especially, importantly, in places like Isaiah, 
Chapter 66, verse 2, perhaps you know it. God says that he looks upon those who are humble and contrite in heart. Literally, the language is those who are poor and contrite. That's what Jesus is talking about here. A spiritual reality, something within, not our circumstances outside, but something that is inside of us. A lowliness, an emptiness in the spirit of a person. As he or she thinks of him or herself. All by him or herself. So what's going to have to happen right now if this is going to mean anything to anybody here? is you're gonna have to stop and think about you. This is not about you with other people. Other Beatitudes come to that, we'll we'll come to that eventually. This is about you and you. And you before God, because you are never by yourself, you are always before God. So you, How do you see yourself? How do you think of yourself? How do you carry yourself? In your own head and in your own heart. Poor in spirit is what Jesus says is proper. An attitude of yieldedness, of of humble lowliness, of emptiness before God. Conscious of that and actually feeling it. Aware of and actually believing that none of your abilities, none of your wisdom, none of your strength, none of your educational background, not your racial or your cultural heritage, not your gender, not your, your economic status, not anything that you've done anywhere in life, not, not, not nothing is anything. Now, as I say this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna drill into this, hear this. Do not misunderstand. I am not trying to, God is not trying to do some gigantic, uh, into the center of your chest. So there. No, 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 no. Not that at all. Please hear that. Not that at all. You have to think about yourself here and, and don't hear that, mm. think about this in a, yeah. Yeah. What he just said conscious of and believing that none of my abilities and none of my supposed knowledge and strength, none of that means anything. I don't have a leg to stand on. All of it is a vapor and a mist. Yeah. It's the opposite of proud, obviously, but it's also the opposite of all of pride's cousins, like confidence and self-assurance, self-esteem. 
all those perspectives that a lot of us find really attractive and kind of want to build in ourselves and want to find in other people, we, we like those things, resting in our own capabilities and, and an ability to like stand up and do something. Think about this for a second. Don't think about it in a, uh, think about it in a, yeah. Our power is puny. You can't control your breath at night. You can't make your heart beat. You can't keep intruders out of your house. You can't make your alarm clock go off. You can't control your legs when you swing them out of the bed. You can't control your metabolism as it processes a breakfast. You can't control all of the ongoing things in your vehicle as it got you here, let alone the vehicles of other people who are speeding by you. Your synapses fire and you form ideas and they come out as words that other people understand. Somehow, you can't make that be. Nobody even understands how that happens. We've put words on them, synapses, metabolism, combustion engine, as if that actually means anything. We've just labeled it. We don't actually know why those things happen like that. Sure we do. When you put this in there, that happens. No, that just says what happened. It doesn't say why it works like that. We don't have any idea. Our power is puny and our knowledge is so small, so shallow. Even what we think we understand, we don't really understand it, and there's so much we don't see. What are we, what are we to be after in life? What, what is the good life you talk about? We don't even know how to define good. Our desires and our bents, our perspectives are so out of whack. Everything is twisted. If we knew what good was, and if we could somehow accomplish it, we couldn't even sustain it. We couldn't keep it. You can't. Life runs through your fingers like sand, doesn't it? Here today and gone tomorrow, everything is, all of our lives are falling apart as we speak. Our power is puny. Our understanding is shallow. We don't have any idea what is good and we don't know where to find it if we, if we could define it even. In relation to the people, me to you, you to me, perhaps one has better reason to be confident than another. But we're not talking about other people. We're talking just about you and you before God. Not in a mm sense, but in a yep, that's true. We are small flowers quickly fading, absolutely dependent creatures. We brought nothing into the world. We hold nothing in our hands. We can secure nothing. We are very, very, very small and very, very vulnerable. And so the prophet Isaiah has a question for all of us. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's marked out the heavens with a span? You know, the span is the distance across your hand. Who marked out the heavens like this? Who did that? Who gathers all the dust of the earth into a measure? Who weighs the mountains and scales? There's only one answer to that. Not me. Not me. He sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And so Isaiah then says, lift up your eyes and see who created all of this. Who brings out their host by number and calls them all by name. 
He lives in a time, maybe some of us because of the state we live in, you've had opportunity to get out where there isn't any light and look up at a night sky and you see. That's what he's getting at. Look up and look. And have a seat. This week I read something written by a man named Andrew Fuller and to paraphrase what he was writing about, he said, all of human life All of human life exists in this crust of the earth between the height of Everest and the bottom of the Marianas Trench. All of life exists in that crust. Everything we've ever done exists right in that that crust right there. And in relation to the size of the earth, it's like a postage stamp stuck on a beach ball. The earth is so big, all of our life lives right in that postage stamp stuck on a beach ball, circling our sun in which 1.3 million Earths would fit. That's a million with an M. 1.3 million Earths. It's so big, the sun is, or we're so small, either way. And there are several hundred billion, with a B, stars, in this Milky Way galaxy, like our sun, and that many planets also, like our Earth. Several hundred billion in the Milky Way galaxy, and the current best guess is that there are two trillion, with a T, two trillion galaxies. Look at that. Who made all that? Two trillion galaxies, just one of which, our Milky Way galaxy, has several hundred billion stars, just one of which, our sun, could hold 1.3 million of our Earths on which a postage stamp exists, spliced into the middle of which lives our lives, where we're sitting on blue chairs with all of our confidence, all of our plans for next week, all of our assurance. There we are. Here we are on planet Earth, circling around this sun, living before the God who said, there it is, there it is, and then has a question to ask, where were you when I made all this? Did you help? Did you give me any advice? No? And this is not where were you? So then, have a seat. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. This is just, yeah. Where was I when, I made, when he made all that? Not here. Not me. Where were you? That's what I thought. So I have a command to you then. You shall have no other gods before me. None. I'm the one. I'm the one and the only. And I call you after me. You brought nothing to the table. You hold nothing in your hands. 
I'm the one and I call you after me. Come. Now a Christian hears that and says, that's right. Maybe some other people, maybe even some of us here, maybe you hear that and you, you hear, hear a little bit of, though I've tried to undermine this, you hear a little bit of the, the point in that, or, or it sounds at least maybe some way defeatist, like, man, this is so depressing. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But before we get to why it shouldn't be, let me just reiterate, this is the case. Do you think that about you? That you are a small, frail, nothing-in-your-hands creature, living spliced in the middle of a stamp on a beach ball in a sun, in a galaxy, in a universe, before the God who made all of that? That's humbling. That'll make you low, poor in spirit. Because nothing that you bring to this, nothing you bring to this actually matters. Oh, wait a minute. That's, that's like really, did he just say that? I thought that the whole of the, whole of the Bible is calling us to do things and that God values us. And yes. Yeah, let me come to that in one second. But do you realize drop in the bucket is a way big overstatement? You ever tried to like walk up to the mountain and say, I'm going to get rid of this mountain, I'm going to take this rock and I'm going to carry it home. The mountain looks the same. Nothing we do matters. Yes, it does. Hold on a second. Sit down. Two trillion, hundreds of billions, 1.3 million, beach ball, postage stamp, there's me. Poor in spirit. Now, the astonishing thing, let me pull this back, the astonishing thing is that the God who made all of that did what? Humbled himself and became a human being and stepped into the middle of the postage stamp. <laughs> Why? For no other reason than to honor his own name in saving you. That is astonishing. And that reverses all of this and it's probably what was in the back of your mind. Like, I thought I was valuable. Oh, you are precious. You are. But that's another sermon. This one is about poor in spirit that says, I'm going to have a seat because I have nothing to contribute. And you don't. Now the reason that is not depressing, that this is not gutting and, and dehumanizing is because this is in the context, the first word, blessed. Something about this, Jesus is teaching us, something about this is actually going to bring to you the good life for which others will congratulate you and envy you. 
What is that? Well, that's the second point. We're coming to that. But you realize, if you, if you get this first point, if you get poor in spirit, and you see this, and you see yourself before that one, something in a person gives up the folly of leaning on my own understanding, trusting in my own ways and all the horses and chariots I can gather in the middle of the postage stamp. Something in us says, that's ridiculous, gives up and says, I need something more from somewhere else outside of me. It is not within my own ability. Help. And that puts you in the spot. When you cry help, it puts you in the spot of saying, oh, and there's help to be found as this one steps in to provide it. Blessed are the poor in spirit because, second point, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the second half of the beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit because the poor in spirit come to the spot of realizing I have nothing. And they say help and God delivers to them the kingdom now and the kingdom for forever. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven now and for forever. Remember how we've often discussed the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is not a geographic location on a map that you, can, that you can find. It is rather the place where Christ reigns, the kingdom. And he says the kingdom of heaven, the, the kingdom is theirs. If you look ahead, just glance ahead at four, five, six, you'll see shall, the word shall, shall be, something about the future, but this one is about the present there's something that is right now. Other beatitudes are about what, what becomes, what develops, but this is now ours, yours. And remember, we're talking to Christians here. I'm talking to you. This is your reality. Even right now, the kingdom is here, and it is here to you, poor in spirit, not to those who are smart and rich and powerful and capable, but to those who realize, I have nothing. I need you, Lord, help. Humble like that before God, the rule of Christ is yours. You're a Christian, and you're a Christian because God has worked this into you. This is part and parcel of what it means. I, as I go through all of that earlier, and, I, and I'm talking about all the, the stars and all place before him, every Christian here, you understand, you, you feel that, yeah, that's true. Because God has worked that into you. God has opened your eyes and shown you some of the reality of who you are and who he is. That's true of us now. And it's actually the necessary precursor to becoming a Christian. God opens our eyes and shows us our need for him. It is not how we become a Christian. That involves Christ, Christ crucified, and individuals trusting him. But this, this is who you are. This is reality for you now. You live in the kingdom under the reign of Christ. His governing is over you. His correcting of you. His protecting of you. His providing for you. All of that is yours now, Christian. 
So you could ask, well, then what's the point of this statement? If this is me, and he's just telling me what's true of me and what the blessings are for me, then, then why is this even here? It's good to know, I guess, but why? Because we're prone to wander. Anybody who's a parent or seen children has seen a five-year-old who is otherwise dependent on his or her parents, but in some moment has some gigantic knot in the shoelace and says, I do it. Right? We've all seen this. No, I do it. And you know full well, you can't. There's, there's no hope for this person untying that knot. But he's going to try. We can be like that. We are dependent on this God, and you know it. God's worked something in your heart. There's, there's no like, there's no anger, there's no frustration, there's no God trying to put you in your place. He's, he's reminding you this is your place and you know it. But we are prone to wander. We are prone to say, I do it, and to take things into our own hands and walk away from the blessing. Where is it in your life? Okay. How much grumbling do you find in your life? Complaining about the circumstances around you. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Think about you. I grumble. I think you do too. I grumble because at the bottom, I think I deserve better. I shouldn't have this thing. I should have that thing. But I don't. Where's anxiety in your life? What are you anxious about? Why are you anxious? Think about you. Think about me. I'm anxious because I see the possibility of a terrible future and I'm not sure I can control it and stop that from coming. But my anxiety says I'm trying and I'm worried about it. You could probably observe other things about yourself, other characteristics, but the point is what you're looking for is I do it attitude. And Christian, that can be us. That often is us. And Jesus is telling us here right out of the gate, first thing, the great blessing for you, Christian, the great thing people envy, the thing you should be congratulated on, is that you get to live life under my reign. Why are you walking away? Don't. Don't say, I do it. Come back. Come back. Stay here. Stay under my reign. Stay submissive to me. Stay humble beneath my hand. 
Stay completely wide-eyed, open, aware that you have nothing to trust in, that you have no capabilities, and that all of it is in my hand. I'm the one to be trusted. I'm the one to be listened to. I'm the one to be followed. I'm here for you. I'm available to you. Come and stay. That's why Jesus is telling us this first. This is the beginning of everything. This is dependence on God. This is a hope in him and a non-hope in self. Poor in spirit, humble before God. It's Jesus' enticement to you. I promise you my reign, and my reign includes the control that you want that would release your anxiety. It includes the promise of always doing you good that would release your grumbling. It promises you a wisdom that looks over and knows all things that can just enable you to just uh, stop trying to carry the weight of running the world. You're not made for that. I am. And I'm doing it for you. That's what Jesus is trying to remind us of and entice us with, call us to, with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, the kingdom of God. I think, I think that most of us here know what it's like to live under the beautiful rain to live released. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for you get that. How do, you, how do I become increasingly, how do I remain poor in spirit? Well, Isaiah said, look at the stars. Behold them. Who made all of that? What is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I that you even care about me? But he does. He has. This is the grounding of the Christian life. Calming and, in fact, delighting to us. in letting go of having to carry the weight of the world. It is an insurmountable, hopeless, and exhausting task that we are forbidden from trying. He requires you to live the good life. Requires you to live the good life. Requires you to live under his reign, surrendered to him, humble and well aware that apart from him you can do nothing. Congratulations. That's yours. I said, for this to make any sense, you're going to have to think about yourself. I don't know if you did or not. I don't know if I helped you or not. I can just testify my own experience this past week as I've thought about this and I've thought, I have been like one degree, one degree, one degree, one degree, increasingly drifting towards 
probably, I, I don't know, at least since the beginning of COVID. Just drifting towards a kind of a, mm, at the way this stupid world's going. And this says, have a seat, son. Not have a seat, son. But would you trust the way this stupid world's going to me and just have a seat? I made two trillion galaxies. I got this little stamp under control. I've got your life in the palm of my hand. I got it under control. Stop saying, I do it. And let me. That's the good life. I can set down the grumbling. I can set down the anxiety and whatever else is troubling. I can set it down and say, you can set it down and say, here, Lord, not my will but yours be done. I'm going to have a seat and let you be the king. That's already the case for you, Christian. You're a Christian. You can't be otherwise. There's, there's nobody who's a Christian who's not like that. But we can wander, so come back and stay there, seated, letting him be king. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray. Father, help. We are small. We are so small. Help. Probably a hundred different ways that each of us need help here. Will you correct? Will you rebuke? Will you encourage? Will you strengthen? Will you just help? Help us who are your people to live under your hand happily so, surrendered, thinking little of ourselves, thankfully, and much of you. And Lord, those here who don't know you or don't know where they are before you, would you please speak to them of your vastness, of your goodness, of your graciousness, and of your love, your willingness to step into the middle of the stamp so as to save Humble us all, that you may give us grace and lift us up. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.